I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 55. I'm here with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, who is uh, a theology lecturer at uh, Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, and the author of a number of really wonderful books, which I'm just going to I'm halfway through one. They're great thick tomes. I've got two of them here, which he sent to me. Um, and I'm halfway through um, at his introduction to fundamental theology, which may sound like a, a dry read, but it really isn't. This is, I'm enjoying these tremendously. But that's not what we're going to talk about today, primarily. I'll put the details of these books, which I would recommend to you, um, on, on the show notes. Um, but what's happened, first of all, great to see you, Larry. And, Likewise. Thank uh, yeah, you. <laughs> lovely to have you here. Um, we saw each other at the, uh, is it the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. So this was a conference in Toronto. And you gave a talk on your idea that there are seven transcendentals. And this, this was interesting. And we won't go into that in detail, but I will come back to that because I think that's going to be something that, might be a surprise to some people we tend to assume it's the one the true the good and the beautiful and it always was and it always will be and that's what thinking is even if we know what a transcendental is and you're saying no there's the this this is up for discussion so i was very interested in that i approached you afterwards and when we had a, a conversation about what what we might talk about you talked about this you sent me the notes for a wonderful class. I, I was very excited to re read the notes that you give the, the seminarians on art and the liturgy. Um, so I'm going to ask you about that and what your view is on art and liturgy. Um, first of all, um, Larry, why don't you just give us a little bit of information about yourself? You're a convert, and I know that beauty had a part to play in a conversion. So uh, well, tell us about that, first okay. of all. Yeah, so beauty had a gigantic role to play. Okay. So I was raised an atheist. My dad was a Jewish atheist. Yeah. My mom was a fallen away Protestant. And so there was no religion in our house. Maybe a few times, um, five or six, they made, my parents went to a Unitarian church, but that was about it. And um, I married um, someone who was also an atheist at that time, my wife, Marcia. And at our wedding, there was no mention of God. And... Um, um, but seven years into our marriage, and um, we had a conversion experience. And that was the, the seeds for that were planted in a course on art history that I took at Washington University in St. Louis, where I was going to school. And it was a, it was a great art history class. And the professor, um, the very first class, he put up a Rembrandt portrait right. and, and a Kooning woman number six. I don't have them at hand right now to put up here, but, um, um, and he asked us if we were on our deathbed, which of these two images would we want to have over our bed to contemplate? And so that was just, that was a new way of looking at art ah. to contemplate on one's deathbed. So as that the painting would manifest somehow the meaning of life. And so that's what he taught us to look for. What is the conviction in a work of art about the great questions of the meaning of life? God, man, 
the relationship between mm -hmm. God and man and society and nature. And to look for that conviction and then to ask oneself, is it beautiful and true? This is, this is so interesting. I've, um, there's a, an architect, I think he's still around here in Berkeley called uh, Christopher Alexander, who is uh, going against the tide a, a little bit, but he wrote his attempt to try and uh, um, push uh, beauty in architecture. But the way that he opened this, he said, would you, he showed people things to demonstrate that we actually have an innate sense of objective beauty. Mm -hmm. The question that he asked was, would you like to spend eternity with this? Uh -huh. and it, and it, I don't know whether that's where your lecturer got it from, but it's the same thing. What's mm -hmm. so interesting is that when mm -hmm. you think about that, you respond to it in a different way. And it right. tends to draw out our natural desire for beauty and ultimately for God, I believe. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. So I was, at that time, I was kind of schooled in modern art, in okay. abstract art. And so I was making things that were somewhat like um, de Kooning's abstract expressionist woman number yeah. four. Um, not quite as, uh, not as much angst maybe. But, um, <laughs> but in any case, I didn't want that on my deathbed. No way I yes. would want the Rembrandt portrait. And throughout this course, he was showing us these kinds of contrasts with classical art, um, medieval and Renaissance and Baroque art, in other words, Christian art, and then modern art. And so basically what he was giving us in a kind of nutshell was Western art, pre-Christian, cla so classical, um, and then medieval and Renaissance Christian art, and then what we could call maybe a post-Christian um, vision of man in much of modern art. Not to mm. say that all modern art is post-Christian, but, but certainly yeah. the kind of the iconic images are. Yeah. And yeah. so what he kind of taught us to do was see that, that there was a, so in the Greek art, very often you get the image of an ideal, an Apollo, right? Venus. Right. In Christian art, very often, especially in the Renaissance and the Baroque, when you get the portrait, so Rembrandt's great portraits, it's this person, so it's an individual, but not the same kind of individual as you might get in a, say, a Roman portrait, that it would be a person's station, you know, the emperor Caligula or something. Yeah. But here it's this person created by God in his image, redeemed by Christ. So there was an image of the individual there. And then in post-Christian art, in say 20th century art, either you have the banishing of the human face on the one hand, yeah. abstract art, or you had um, super realism um, like Chuck Close and other yeah. painters who would take a photograph below it, paint it meticulously. But what you get there is an image of the banality of life because it's taking the accidents as it were. And just, and so this is what he didn't say, the professor didn't say this in so many words, but what I kind of saw was in the Greek art, you had the ideal, kind mm -hmm. of the platonic ideal in the, in the superrealist 20th century art, you got the individual um, divorced from, from any ideal. And then in the, in the Renaissance, you had a Christian vision of the individual redeemed by Christ. Anyways, that was one thing. And there were a lot of other things he kind of laid out about. And so we fell, my wife and I fell in love with Christian art through that class. And um, we ended up spending a year um, in Europe junior year abroad and visited 
many of the things that um, you showed us. We went to, we were able to go to um, Notre Dame and Chartres Cathedral on Christmas Day. And so that made it, but we're still atheists. But Chartres Cathedral on Christmas Day, there was um, some monks in the, in the sanctuary singing the divine office, chanting right. the divine office. And so, yeah, that was an, an invitation to faith that we felt very strongly, but, yeah. and so then I wanted to find a place to study art in the classic tradition, but I, at that time, this is in 1981, I couldn't find anything. And so I decided to study art history with the idea of being able to learn about the classics and, the, um, and then to kind of do art myself based on that. So we ended up, um, um, after a few years in New York, moving to um, a town in Italy, in Tuscany, called Pietrasanta. So it was this, an international sculptor's community. And people would, um, so what I did is I rented space in the studio and I did a, a marble sculpture, um, totally impractical. So, so you, I, you are an artist then, you're a sculptor. Yeah, yeah, at, at a, a former period of my life. Wow, I, okay, <laughs> yeah, okay, right. Um, and so actually, I. Um, so I, I spent a couple of years doing a statue of her and did a, um, a bronze and, uh, but we had a lot of time in, cause I was doing a life-size marble. Yeah. There's lots of time to think because it's very slow. And um, so we were constantly visiting churches to see Christian art. We would leave when there was a mass um, and we had time to think about life during that period. Yeah. So that was the kind of the proximate preparation for our conversion. I remember during that period, one time we went to the Sistine Chapel and um, it hit me, wow, I'm not asking, you know, everybody's kind of taking pictures of the Sistine Chapel and, and nobody's asking, is there a judgment? And where will I stand? I, Michelangelo painted that last judgment for the Cardinals to think about eternity. And, and their judgment, right? And so anyway, yeah. it hit me the disconnect that I, how can I admire this for its beauty and not ask the truth question? Especially since what I loved so much in that art history class was that the two questions are inextricably um, go together. Yes, yes. The very ugliness of an image of life is a sign that it, can't be true ultimately right because if beauty and truth have to go now there can be a false beauty that's not a true beauty and that can but uh, i think i mean different people maybe approach this differently but for me it was easier to see through beauty the question of truth and then to be convicted by the fact that i wasn't posing the truth question in having a kind of cult of beauty Okay, and so where did you go from there? How, so, so that was a couple of months before the decisive thing. Yeah. And about a month later than that, I had a, um, so my, my one contact with a Catholic was a fallen away Catholic who was a sculptor in that same town who lived right next door to us. And um, even though he was a fallen away Catholic through some tragic personal circumstances, he, he defended the Catholic faith and I, at that point, I was defending Buddhism, something like that, Eastern religiosity, which I didn't know anything about either. And, um, yeah. But then 
right at that time, so my, my wife was pregnant, and she was about half six months into the pregnancy. And so I remember thinking, I didn't have a conviction to pass on. And that was a real problem to our son. But the principal thing was, during the pregnancy, she got um, this terrible anxiety, irrational. And, and one day she said she didn't want to live. And so that was actually, that was the decisive thing. And it hit me, wow, I'm, I'm not able to satisfy her. I'm not able to love her in the way that she needs to be loved. I can't feel that. And when she's having this anxiety, I want to run away from it. And so it hit me that day, there had to be someone who does, right? And God the Father. Mm. And, um, and I saw I had to ask him to teach me to love. And so I had to pray. I'd actually never prayed in my life. Brought up atheist. And so, um, so the next day, I, I thought I'd go to pray in the Duomo in Florence. Yeah. And so I got on a train to Florence. It was about an hour away. And um, on the train, I started, I felt moved to pray for the first time. And teach me to love and to be a light unto others. And there came into my mind the words of the baptism of Christ, which I knew from art history. Because to study Renaissance art, you had to read, we had to read the New Testament. And basically, we had to read the Bible. And, and so, so I knew some things from, from that. And so there came to me the words, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Psalm number two, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Anyway, I felt in my heart that that was being said actually to the son, to, to Jesus Christ. And that we were sons and daughters in him. So that was the key experience. That was 1988. And so I knew we had to be, so I wasn't thinking about Jesus Christ, but in any case, he, he, he brought it, focused it to him. And um, so, um, so about the next week, we went to church together. And again, beauty played a role. There was a ninth a Romanesque church in our village, which was beautiful. And so we went and it was the fourth Sunday of Easter. And we were gonna leave after, you know, we wouldn't go to pray and then leave before the mass. But our landlady came in, we stayed, and it was, it was beautiful. And Good Shepherd Sunday and Vocation Sunday. And, um, and so that was the beginning. And so we ended up um, getting baptized in the Anglican Church in Florence, of all things. Um, the same church, I think, where Dietrich von Hildebrandt was baptized. And it was the one Anglican Church in Florence. And, um, but then... Um, the, we had actually fallen in love with Christian culture. So it didn't make any sense, uh, you know, being engrafted into the Reformation. So I didn't, I didn't like the Reformation. Um, it was kind of a middle way. But in any case, it was, it was through reading Newman that, um, and that was a couple months after our baptism, I picked up a Newman reader. And that really spoke to me. And, and so we entered RCA. And so we ended up... Um, coming to the church in 1989, the Easter right. So that's kind of our story. And then I felt called to leave aside the sculpture and to study theology. So mm. that, was, that was our story. That's interesting. So my first prayer, and, mm -hmm. and I'd never prayed before, was in mm -hmm. 1988. Really? Six. And uh, I wrote this, my story in this book, uh -huh. Vision for You. But, and uh, so it would be in 90 three I think that I converted but very similar I, I was drawn 
through the experience of prayer, actually, and mm -hmm. a, an improving life, but drawn to the beauty of the church, and, as, and it was an experience with a, with a beautiful liturgy that really connected it to a reality, that, that, that this is not just about a pleasing appearance, mm -hmm. this is a sign of something greater, and, and that's, mm -hmm. it's interesting, I hear the same thing in your story there, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the perception of the truth that it points to, um, but it was certainly beauty that um, pulled me in, and that's, that's what inspired me to want to try and evangelize the culture as well. All right, so uh, your, um, tell us about your, your core. So you can refer back to your personal okay. experience. Okay. I'm very interested to hear this. But um, so uh, you're now, um, you're teaching theology. You study mm -hmm. clearly very deeply, um, uh, strong grounding in St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. And the, the project you seem to be on is connecting um, th these various strands, um, Benedict the Sixteenth, John Paul the mm -hmm. Second, the the, um, the, the uh, papers, I, the encyclicals. I, I, I've mm -hmm. forgotten the exact phrase from Vatican mm -hmm. Two. The uh -huh. yeah, the constitutions. That, that's the phrase mm -hmm. I'm looking for. Um, and um, really, sort of connecting all of these with Saint Thomas. And what comes through very strongly in what I read is this holistic view which I think is, is similar. You're looking at the whole somehow and drawing mm -hmm. all these strands together. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that someone who is sensitive to beauty is able to do this. We look at the whole and then mm -hmm. we connect the parts and the harmony between the parts. And it seems to me you're doing this academically. Um, trying, uh-huh. No, that's a... Well, that's, I, a, that's what I'm reading when I look at this. Mm -hmm. This is what's exciting me about the, about the books that I'm reading. But... When we talked about uh, what you were talking about, you, you sent me the notes of a class uh -huh. that you're teaching to the seminarians. And I read through this. And firstly, I'm just excited that seminarians are getting something like this. It's not usual, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but could you tell us a little bit about the, 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 the course and how from this background you ended up producing this course? And then just tell us a little bit about the the structure of it. And again, I'm very happy for you to relate this to your personal experiences and uh, yeah. how the discussion took place. You know, you clearly mm -hmm. took this upon yourself to, to teach this. So mm -hmm. just tell us about that and the impact it has on the seminarians. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important. Um, so maybe back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think obviously not everyone, different temperaments, come to the Catholic faith through different ways, yes. right? And so yes. we could say, I mean, just to make it simplistic, truth, beauty, and goodness, right? And so there are those who maybe it's the moral dimension that might draw them to the Catholic faith. In others, you know, apologetics or truth questions, and in others, beauty. And obviously they all have to go together. But I was definitely one of those beauty people. And I think there are a lot out there. And so that's why I think it's so important that... Um, future priests um, have come to church. And among the beauty people, um, Pope Benedict is one of the yes. most magnificent. Yes. Um, I was really touched by a, a talk that he gave in 2002, before he was elected Pope, to communion and liberation. 
and he spoke there. It's a um, he spoke about how um, the two, perhaps today, to present the faith, to evangelize, two of the most important things he said have to do with beauty: the patrimony of beauty that the church has produced, and the beauty in the lives of the saints. Right? And so, and he says beautiful things there about icons as well as music. And um, he talks there about a, um, a Bach cantata that he heard um, with a, a Lutheran bishop. And at the end of it, he says, anyone who's heard this knows that the faith is true or ought to. Um, precisely with the idea that the faith having produced that beauty, now every culture produces beauty, but the faith produces a beauty that's distinctive, that manifests that deeper truth of the Catholic faith. So that's kind of what I was hoping to do with this course, to to flesh that idea out. Yeah. Right, um, and the, you um, the, let's explore a little bit. I just want to say that having read the notes, I know I, I keep coming in because I'm excited no, about whatever. But first of all, you even have in there some of these ideas of proportion and harmony, the mathematical, uh -huh. which. It's not spoken about very often. That's true, yeah. And that was... almost forgotten. It used to be standard in architecture, right. for example, right. and just absent for the last maybe 100 years or something. Totally, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. So when I was studying in art school at here at Washington University and then later in New York City, um, I never heard a word about yeah. anything having to do with mathematical proportions. Yeah. It's and so incredible. what I. It's incredible, yeah. And so when I found out from studying art history, and even there it was hardly spoken about, yes. but it became evident that all of the, I mean, so it's the most obvious in Greek art, right? So polyclitus, the, um, the, the Greek nude is intimately intertwined with the idea that the cosmos, so man is a microcosmos, a little cosmos in the Greek view. And both man and the cosmos are ruled by number, proportion, and harmony. And so the beauty of the human body is um, a proportionate beauty, a harmony of also of numbers, obviously not only of numbers or even principally of numbers, but also of numbers, right? And so um, that's part of what makes that Greek nude ideal mm. is that it has this canon, of, and there can be different canons. Um, and the same thing happens in Greek architecture, the column, right? It's got a canon that's based on the human figure. And we look at it, and maybe we don't think about that, but that's what's giving us that sense of peace and harmony in looking at that. And then one can take that canon and use it to create movement and drama. And so that's kind of what happens in Hellenistic art and in Baroque art, Renaissance and Baroque art. And so I, I mean, that was a whole world that um, yeah, wasn't ever explained to us in art school that, I mean, it's just inconceivable that someone like Michelangelo or Raphael would have made a painting or a sculpture without thinking very deeply about the numerical relationships mm. of the of the figures yeah i was always i studied for a year at one of the ateliers this is portrait painting in florence actually mm -hmm. and um the people who went there they uh they weren't they rejected modern art very often because they're learning this mm -hmm. rigorous method that developed out of the academies we learned mm -hmm. the academic method um, this is drawing and painting. Um, and so they knew they were interested in classical art, but it was interesting that they're so still very secular. 
So mm -hmm. the, the idea that you could learn the mathematics of you, they would just reject. They, mm -hmm. they would still believe that, well, I, I, I can do this intuitively if I, if I, just, if I just copy casts. Right. And, and mm -hmm. I, it's, it's amazing how um, fully it's been rejected in today's right. society. Yeah. And then another connection there that I didn't realize at first is the connection of that harmony with music. And yeah. again, for the, for the Greeks and for the Renaissance, that was just obvious. So Palladio, the great uh, architect of the 16th century, yeah. Italian, and he has this famous book of four books on architecture. Yeah. If you read that, you find it's all about numerical proportion. Yeah. And he thinks that that numerical proportion in, say, um, the dimensions of a room in architecture are musical. In other words, so in the different musical notes, um, or rather intervals, say an octave, comes from the fact that the wavelength is twice um, the other note. The, um, yeah. And so his idea, or, and we could say all of classical architecture is based on the idea that the eye can see those musical harmonies. Mm. Um, even if you don't know that that's what you're looking at. Yeah. Um, and it'll be satisfied by them. And it can also create dissonance and resolution and movement and and then harmony yeah. and the, the the point i i wonder if you make this point to your um seminarians but of course the liturgy is, is following the patterns of the cosmos mm -hmm. and so when the art the music and the very pattern of sacred time mm -hmm. is is breathing in and out in mm -hmm. this rhythm um everything works together mm -hmm. and it's a vast symphony Mm -hmm. more than musical it's 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 multi-sensual right. Right, right directs right. us uh and beyond the senses to the mm -hmm. soul to right. god and right. all of this can work together and uh, right so there's this can in the liturgy most sums it up because you're it has um so even in sorry let me step back a step yeah in yeah. the classical sense it's a harmony that ultimately comes from um, a God understood as Logos. Right? But with Christianity, that's made explicit. And so that classical idea finds its proper home in Christianity, that yeah. the cosmos is made through the Logos, the word. And therefore, there's, there's harmony instilled into all things, above all into the human being. But then a new level is added. There's a harmony not just in nature, but supernature. Yes. Horizon of grace. And so there you get a new harmony. We could say a threefold harmony. The cosmos around us, the human person in his nature, yeah. and the grace added on top of that. Or maybe that's not the right word there. Grace elevating the whole. Yes. Um, and so that's the harmony that comes out in the sacred liturgy. And of course, that third dimension, you can't easily put your finger on it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, beautiful. And of course, it's there in the most banal mm -hmm. liturgy in what mm -hmm. I once I heard described briefly, uh, celebrated in the suburban rite. In other words, the, yeah, the suburban rite. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> Tragically. Which, which is what, you know, we generally see. So the, I'm not I'm not talking about heretical practices. Uh -huh. I'm just talking about that the art and music does not um, stimulate in mm -hmm. the same with right. power that it did in you and I in those experiences. 
But how much more important if you live in the suburbs yeah. to discover that? Yes. Right? Um, so <laughs> let's, let's bring it to the parish situation. So your seminarians, they're going to be ordained. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to the Duomo, they're going to the suburbs. Right. Um, so in terms of art, um, what, what can they do? What, 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 can we just sort of get a sense of, of, in a practical way of what ought to be there and what they right. can do about right. it? Assuming they've got one or two people in the parish who are prepared at least to think about purchasing or buying Right. And reasonable art, even if it's not commissioning it, sensibly chosen reproductions, which are mm -hmm. worth, even that is better than nothing at all. Right, I'm, sure. Oh, absolutely. I'm not dead against that at all. Um, no, if it's, if it's well done, yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear you say that. And mm -hmm. um, Oh, no, much but, better to have a, a beautifully done um, yes. reproduction of a, a work that does what it's supposed to do, that fulfills the mission of the liturgy. Yes, that, I, absolutely. And it's up to the artists to compete mm -hmm. with that. So if right. I'm an artist, mm -hmm. I, I have to make my work compete with mm -hmm. the very best. And mm -hmm. people always want a real work of art. Sure. Mm -hmm. and right it's as beautiful as, and does mm -hmm. the job, as you say. So, mm -hmm. oh, this is great. Yeah, that's, that's what I've heard. So uh -huh. what, where's, where should the focus be? In, okay, in great. Art so I would... I would refer to a document by St. Pius X on music okay. and transfer it to art. Because I think it applies to both music, art, and architecture in the liturgy. Okay. So the document is right at the beginning of his pontificate, Trale Solicitudini. So it's an instruction on sacred music. And I think it's the first thing he did as Pope, which is interesting, right? Yes. He's just been elected Pope. And this is the first thing is on his mind to issue an instruction on sacred music. Who would think of doing that today? Mm. And in this um, instruction, he speaks about the principles that ought to be in um, liturgical music. And those, he basically gives three. That, and the first is it has to be sacred. And by sacred meaning, pointing up to God. In other words, transcendent. It ought to, has to make clear a vertical dimension, right? And so music does that in its own way, right? So music yes. does that through a sense of eternity, a sense of um, not a march theme, right? But, um, and so Gregorian chant would have that aspect of um, transcendence. But obviously in architecture, verticality, right? So in every liturgical architecture, there's gotta be, even if you're, constrained by a budget or whatnot, there has to be seen that vertical uh, access, that yeah. vertical dimension, raising the soul. And it's, I mean, in the mass, the, the dialogue, the invitatory dialogue, raise up your hearts, right? The architecture has to be saying that. And the artwork, suppose there's an, an altarpiece or yeah. a painting in the apse or in the, uh, it should be moving the eye up to God. Yes. And it's, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and art, of course, can do it uh, by careful placement, by the mm -hmm. themes that mm -hmm. that um, when you, that natural instinct is to look up, right, you see something that immediately says, "This is where you should be looking." So somehow right. the imagery, right, 
uh, right. could speak to that. That's right. And it can be done in many different ways. Yes. So Gothic architecture is all about that, obviously. Right. But that's, right, we can't necessarily um, compete with the verticality of uh, some of the, the classic Gothic cathedrals. But yeah. Romanesque architecture has its own um, vertical verticality. Yeah. So just simply the idea of a vault, a vault that lifts up the eye and or a dome. See, dome must be more expensive. Um, but then even on over the altar, so in a, in a church, it needs to manifest. So the second principle would be that the liturgical music and architecture and art should manifest what's happening. Yes. So to manifest the liturgical action. All right, what's happening in a church? <laughs> sacrifice of Calvary yes. is made present in our time and place. Yes. Christ comes down, becomes present on the altar, and immediately is offered up by the priest and the faithful to yes. the Father. So we're offering God the Son, the victim of Calvary, to his Father. And in that offering, we're putting the whole life of the church. I'm to bring my daily life here at, in the workplace, right, in my study. Mm. I'm to bring my teaching. I'm to bring family life, recreation, to bring all of that into the mass, to put it on the altar, as it were, and then it gets offered up with Christ to the Father. That's what's happening in every mass, right? And so obviously the altar has to be central, but there should be something. It's nice if there's something above the altar, like a baldacchino or a dome, that's making the connection between what's happening here yes. and the heavenly altar on high. So the Roman canon speaks about that, right? Asks, the priest asks, Send your holy angel to, right, to bring this offering up to your yes. altar on high. And so somehow that should be made visible. I, I did a, a, um, a, a crucifixion at Thomas More College in a Gothic uh -huh. style. Um, and we did what I, is sometimes referred to as the, the, the Benedict arrangement. So we had a uh -huh. low-hanging cross uh -huh. that meant that when the priest held the host aloft, you, in your angle of vision, about 15 degrees from where someone would be, mm -hmm. you saw the, mm -hmm. the priest, the elevated host, and Christ on, on the mm -hmm. cross. And then at the foot of the cross, I did a, a six-winged mm -hmm. um, seraph uh -huh. that was effectively supporting Christ. And I had in mind that phrase from the, first, the canon number one, mm -hmm. the first Eucharistic right. prayer, um, that... Uh, the Roman canon, they call it, don't they? Mm -hmm. that, that, may your holy angel take this. Mm -hmm. And I was I'm just, I think it was with the new translation that I, I heard this in English for the first time, and it really struck me. And so I put that angel there. And when the students came into the chapel, I would explain, okay, this is, this is what I was thinking <laughs> of. And I'm hoping that when you hear that phrase, that's what you'll look at and think about. So if I look up Thomas More College, Chapel, will I see that? Um, I can send you. I can send you pictures. You should do. Yes, I hope they are. Certainly, those pictures are still there. Okay. But it's a six-foot cross in the style of Cimabue's, you know, Franciscan-style uh -huh. Gothic cross, and I I put that at the. And uh -huh. the other thing is that the really? chapel, mm -hmm. um, it was. It's in a barn, an an eighteenth-century barn, and it's wider than it is long, uh -huh. and it's got an uneven. Uh, roof. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, converted, and so I was um, did everything to try and 
create this sense of a thrust forward uh -huh. and then a vertical. So we put the art as high up on the back wall as we possibly could so that when you came in, you would look up. <coughs> and that was, um, had no one had looked up that high before because everything had been low. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, and so above the cross, if you, you, you look past the cross, which is hanging down above the altar, mm -hmm. there is a Christ in majesty on the wall above. So that it's, you actually would then look past the cross, you'd see it, and then look up and see this, this large Christ in majesty. Um, oh, that's excellent. And, and, that's, and that, that's, that's what I was trying to think of. Right. And then, um, right, because so in every liturgical eye, in every mass, that's exactly what's happening, right? Christ becomes present, yeah. uh, risen Christ, but he's the one who's the victim of Calvary. He becomes present on the altar. He's offered up to his father. And, and so the apse should represent that. But we also want to be thinking of Christ who will come again. So in the church, there's another aspect, which is um, to represent the whole, to represent time in its flow, right? So we're in a, we speak of the nave, yeah. ship. Right? And so a ship is in, on a journey and we're on a journey to the parousia, to the second coming. Right? And so um, the east apse, in other words, the, uh, behind the, the altar, yeah. um, represents symbolically um, Christian hope and the direction of Christian life to our destiny. And again, it, it can, it's good if, if that's manifested, that enables the faithful to get some in, image in their imagination and in their mind for the whole of life. Yes. And um, I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, again, I can't tell you how excited I am to think that you're telling the seminarians this. And, mm -hmm. and, and this is, should be, the, in my opinion, that the first art that goes in the church is the art that speaks of this. Mm -hmm. Devotional art is wonderful, but this is mm -hmm. these are, this is a supporting player right. to the liturgical, which really should be that you go in there and you and you know what that church is for, and right. it's the choice of music, as you say when you hear mm -hmm. it, the architecture and the art should the thought process mm -hmm. that those should be thought about together, ideally. Mm -hmm. um, One more principle. Yeah, go on. Yeah, we're only, we're only, we only done one of them. That's right, okay. yeah. So okay. another principle yep. is that it has to be good art, true art. <laughs> In other words, it, it has to be worthy of its function. Yes. Right? So you don't want, you bring to, to the Lord a sacrifice, um, an immaculate lamb. Right? In other words, you, so what's used in the liturgy ought to be especially beautiful mm. and therefore harmonious, good in its own right. Yes. And so... Yeah, and, but that can be done in many different ways. So I think that part of the beauty of the Catholic Church is precisely the diversity of the ways in which um, this has been done. Yes. Liturgical art, um, music, architecture. And so I think, yeah, there's something beautiful about the fact that one can draw from different styles. Mm. And, and they might be quite different, and yet all of them showing different aspects of the, the fullness that is Catholicity. Oh. Yes, and provided they have those universal aspects. Right. That, right. That, because so that, that, 
which is That's the, the final thing. Yeah, exactly. So the third criterion yeah. that Pius the Tenth lays out, St. Pius Tenth, is that it can't be simply a trend or an into a fashion of today. That it's yeah. got to be able to stand the test of time and have a universal appeal. Yes. Um, because again, Catholic Church. It's not the English church or the Russian church. Yeah. It's so it's to speak to all men. And so obviously um, I mean, we're going to be using artistic styles that grew up in a particular place and time. Yeah. And it still has to be aiming at that universality. And I think that's what makes us, when we speak about something being classical, that's a classic, right? It can stand the test of time. It's not just yeah. a particular fashion of a related trend. Uh, the thing about this is that when you think in those terms, it always strikes me. I, I think you know, the phrase that Chesterton used is the democracy of the dead. You know, mm -hmm. but, exactly. But actually, you start to that. trust in human nature. You're, mm -hmm. you're saying, actually, this is not for certain elite people to choose. Right. Uh, they can have a role. I mean, all people mm -hmm. contribute. The knowledgeable, one hopes people will listen to, to them. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the test is what, people love to have and we will we'll stand the test of time we and i think in the end we need to trust more in in general human nature uh -huh. uh, um but taking into account as you say those key aspects that that w what has withstood the test of time and right. even if i produce something today which draws on my time and place it's got to participate also in those right. universal aspects. Right. So I would like to, maybe that could be a fourth principle, that precisely because we're dealing with art in service of the church, mm. which lives by tradition with a capital T, yeah. the art, um, architecture, and music used in the liturgy should be rooted in tradition. Yes. Right? But again, there are different, there are choices there because that tradition is Catholic and rich. Yes. Um, and the, the so I always think that that is the um, the, the eternal element <laughs> that's come, and the, the liturgy is the source of its own culture, and so mm -hmm. that's that aspect will speak to all people, it, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why you could take a piece of Spanish art in the sixteenth mm -hmm. century, mm -hmm. go to South America, and then you can get a fusion with local culture because. Right. They they don't just see Spain. What they see is is a Christ a work of Christian art, and then what always happens is that that element is passed on, and it organically it takes on the local flavor. Mm -hmm. But it's the that that universal element that 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 is carried through, and is drawn from the Spanish art, or if it was a Greek icon painted by Theophon the Greek or something, um, who went to Russia. Right. From a Greek icon, you get a distinctive Russian style developing. But they don't look at the, the original and say, well, that's Greek, we're no longer interested. They uh -huh. still see those universal elements. And that has inspired something that is uh, particular to Russia. Mm -hmm. Those are great examples. And it's... And so when people talk about Western imperialism, I say, no, European culture, certainly there's aspects of this that are mm -hmm. particular to particular places, particular times. But as long as it's Christian, um, it's good to take this to people and then say, okay, 
inspired by this. You don't force anything on people. Mm-hmm. It's their choices that they mm-hmm. will respond to what they like. But inspired by this, take what seem, what appeals to you from this, which will be the universal elements, and then um, discerningly and mm-hmm. um, looking for inspiration as you do it, praying for God's guidance, mm-hmm. add on or fuse with those aspects of our of the culture of the t- of the place and uh-huh. then you end up with an immense richness of beauty a multifaceted jewel effectively mm-hmm. which is the body of of artistic work of the culture of, mm-hmm. of the church right. that's, that's the, the the correct understanding of the enculturation right so enculturation it's got a i mean you start with the gospel it's the yes. gospel that enculturates yes. but then it's going to be received in a unique way by different people, yes, but not not all by itself. Precisely through the aid of that culture that has developed already elsewhere. Yeah, so that, those those are beautiful illustrations of that. Well, and, I, and again, now th- there is it, it isn't absolutely rigid, of course, that these qualities—sanctity, goodness of form, mm-hmm. universality—or and mm-hmm. the fourth principle of the, uh-huh. the sort of tradition, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, that inevitably we have to, everyone has to make judgments as to which pieces have this. But mm-hmm. um, the more we allow tradition to guide us um, and say, well, if I steep myself in what is traditional and, and seems to have possessed these qualities, the more I'm going to be likely to be able to choose things which correspond to that. Uh-huh. And yeah. that is why, we don't just set the seminarians loose. They attend your course because mm-hmm. presumably that's what you're aiming to do. In, right. in, in and it's the same with regard to theology. Okay. So th- that's kind of what you set up at the beginning there. Yes. So I try and do the same thing in theology in general. Yes. But they should. So I, I wasn't formed in theology. I was formed first in art. But I, what I learned through that art history class that I began with, the importance of going to the classics, precisely in this sense, yes. those who have really... Um, and then you're going to do it differently in your time and place, right? So when I was in art school, we were, you couldn't copy, right? So you can't look at Michelangelo, you can't look at Rembrandt, because, but, but in reality, that's the way culture grows. Yes. By loving something and then trying to make it your own. And yes, you'll do it differently because you're in a different context. And, and so I, when I became, when we became Catholic and I started studying theology, and that was a great grace because there were a lot of crazy ideas after the Second Vatican Council yeah, of yeah. rejecting the classics, right? So a lot of libraries were throwing away their Thomas Aquinas yeah. and um, a lot of other things. And so that was a real blessing for me to know to go to look to those. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I fell in love with, with Aquinas, Augustine. But at the same time, to, if I can say this, think for yourself. So mm-hmm. you're not bound by right. Thomas, you're liberated by That's it. That's right. Because when you view set, it in this way. Right. And so to set it in that tradition. Yes. So just what we were talking about with tradition in art, that's the bigger task for theology as a whole. To see, again, to get some sense of this living tradition that grows and develops, which is so beautiful. And that's one of the, I think, the most convincing motives of credibility of the Catholic faith, precisely that life that 
um, yes. that grows through different historical periods, just when you think it should die, right? The Enlightenment, um, <laughs> 20th century, you know, with the, yeah. the world wars and so many things, so much confusion. Well, I think we'll finish there, but I, I, that is an, um, such an optimistic note. And I, I have to say, I think it's a great time to be a Catholic. Mm -hmm. right? I always say that think, never could it be, or no other time perhaps could it be so bad that even I can contribute to what's going on. <laughs> and, um, it, I just think it's really exciting. We, we, we can't fail. The church is bound to succeed. And, we, and the opportunity to contribute and add something beautiful, whatever you're doing, has never been greater, I think, in the, the capacity to do it. And there's, as, as a result of this, I think the church is going to be richer and stronger when it comes through this. I really, mm -hmm. I really believe this. And I want to say, I think I, I'm, I'm convinced and as I read through the first of these books, and I'm going to order the third one as soon as I've done these two. I'm convinced you're adding to this, uh, Larry. I, I just want to thank you for taking the trouble to write these and thank you for introducing me to this. Um, I'm going to put... Um, put details of these books on the show notes um, and encourage people to read them. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. That was yeah. a great pleasure. I hope we can do it again. I really uh -huh. do. Okay. God bless you. God bless. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.